That would be fantastic. Acts chapter number 26. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter tonight. Verse 24 through verse 29 is where we'll be, we will begin. Please stand if you're able to as we read the principal text here. Verse 24 says this. It says, And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king, speaking of Agrippa, knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. We're going back to this idea of preaching to politicians. Tonight we'll look at Herod Agrippa. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight as we look at this passage. And uh, Lord, consider the importance of persuading people with the gospel. Paul worked so hard, as we'll see tonight, to use his own testimony and the gospel message to stir Agrippa's heart, to get him to come to salvation. Lord, help us to follow that model of persuasion. May we seek to take a world that is enamored with all of the distractions and the toys and the trinkets that keep people from heaven. And Lord, help us to show them the eternal riches of, of, of Calvary, both in the way we live but also with our lips. May we be good at convincing others of the importance of salvation. Be with us tonight as we look at this passage. Enlighten our hearts and eyes to it. And Lord, change us as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to begin tonight by asking you a question, all right? Here's the question. How well do you think you have developed your critical thinking skills? Your critical thinking skills. Um, Many people can identify a scam pretty easily, all right? How many of you have gotten better at identifying scams since cell phones came out, right? Um, now, even your, your uh, cell phone carrier oftentimes will tell you, scam likely, scam likely. And uh, boy, there's a lot of scams out there. There are a handful of uh, YouTube channels devoted to uncovering scam, scammers from other country that uh, are able to bait older people into giving them tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, uh, and they're very sophisticated in these scams. And uh, how well have you developed those critical thinking skills? The truth is there are people working to persuade us towards something all the time. All the time. What is their motive? When people are looking to persuade you, what is their motive? Well, most oftentimes it's to wiggle just a few more dollars out of that wallet. They want to try to get just a few more dollars out of your wallet. Uh, here's another question. Do commercials work on you? Do commercials work on you? Sometimes. Some of you say, I don't watch commercials anymore. Commercials are everywhere. You can't get away from them. Billboards are commercials, Right? I'm amazed at how well companies can market in a five to six second window. You all know what I'm talking about? 
How many of you have ever had someone send you a video to your phone and you click on the video and you get this six second, you can skip the ad in six seconds. You know what I'm talking about? And how much they can cram in to a six second window. We are being marketed to all the time. Commercials are everywhere. And the question, do commercials work on you? And the answer is, of course they do. Of course they Not me. Oh, yes, they do. Yes, they do. Uh, why else would companies spend millions of dollars every single year? They spend millions of dollars every single year. We're getting ready to have the Super Bowl. You know how much a 30-second slot is to have a commercial during the Super Bowl? It's in the millions of dollars just for a 30-second slot. Uh, and some companies will have several 30-second slots. Why are they spending all of that money, are they just throwing their money away? Are they lighting a $100 bill on fire? No, they're not doing that. They do it because they know that commercials work. Uh, persuasion through the form of advertisement is powerful and effective. Um, persuasion happens around us all the time, and you may not even know it. How many of you here have ever uh, realized the location of the milk and the bread in the grocery store. They put the milk where? Way in the back. Way in the back corner. I would say most every grocery store, the milk is in the very back corner of the store. Where is the bread? The bread is in the middle of almost every single grocery store. Why do they put the milk in the back and the bread in the middle? They want you to have to walk past as many of their products as possible so that they can convince you to pick up more than just milk and bread while you're in the store. There's a psychology out there called store psychology. Store psychology. And companies like Walmart and Target and a big uh, chain grocery stores, they spend millions of dollars every year uh, to figure out how to best configure their store to know what to put on the end caps. The end caps are the most precious real estate in a grocery store, and they look to put um, uh, impulse buy items on the end caps so that on your way to get the milk or the bread, you'll grab that bag of Doritos or that, uh, that, that, that life water or whatever it is that they think will be a high profit margin item that will get you to impulse buy. How many of you have ever tried to take kids through a checkout aisle and found it difficult to keep their fingers off the candy and the candy bars and the sodas and everything else that's there? Uh, why do they do that? Because they know that parents obey their children. We talked about that this morning, right? Parents obey their children and the children are going to say, can I have that candy bar? Can I have this Soda. And I used to tell Matthew and April, especially April, sorry to throw you in the best April, uh, I used to tell uh, Matthew and April all the time, mainly April, quit touching the candy. Quit touching the candy. It touch, 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 pick it up, look at it, smell it, do everything but put it in their mouth. Uh, they want that, and it's, it's this idea of how can we persuade you to get as much money from you as uh, possible, as possible. On top of the money that companies spend on a TV advertisement spot, Many spend millions more to understand what will persuade you to spend money in their directions. Car companies. Car companies go as far as rebranding the same car to sell to different age brackets. Did you know that the car company Kia and Hyundai are owned by the same people? Kia and Hyundai are owned by the same people. Now, Kia 
is sold to younger uh, kids, and Hyundai is sold to middle-aged and up. Kia, same vehicle. Same vehicle. Uh, they've changed a few things in, on the inside. Same engine. Uh, uh, pretty much the same interior. A little bit different design. A little bit different logo. But when it comes to advertising, boy, if you ever watch a Kia commercial, they're all aimed at younger kids. If you ever watch a Hyundai commercial, they're all aimed at folks who are middle-aged and up. These are persuasion tactics, and uh, they are doing everything they can to persuade you. How many of you here are parents or grandparents? Raise your hand if you're a parent or a grandparent. All right, a parent or grandparent, then you well know uh, the, the, the power that children hold in persuasion. All right, children are some of the best persuaders. Ever try to take a child down the cereal box aisle? How many of you were that child that your mom hated taking down the cereal box aisle, right? And uh, my mom and dad bought the cheapest cereal they could buy. I mean, it was as off-brand as off. Y'all need to loosen up a little bit tonight, amen? Um, uh, It was as off-brand as off-brand could get. Um, This was back before off-brand cereal tasted good. How many of you remember back when off-brand cereal did not taste good? All right? Uh, I've had my share of, of, of not... Not brand flakes, off-brand brand flakes. Now, um, brand flakes are not sweet. You all understand that? And then my mom would not let me put sugar on top of, you get the, you know, medicine cup of sugar and you dump that all over your cereal. My mom would smack my hand and say, no sugar on the, uh, listen, this is like eating cardboard. You, you got to help me out here. This is, this is terrible, right? This is awful. And, and um, uh, the, the, the off-brand cereals today, maybe it's just because I'm older and I'm, a, I'm, I'm cheap like my parents were, but to me, off-brand cereals today taste great. They didn't taste so good when I was a little kid. And I remember when I went off to Bible college, my first trip to the grocery store for my dorm room, I bought myself, not off-brand, I bought myself Golden Grams. Amen, Golden Grams. And Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Amen? Hallelujah for Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Can I get a witness? And a half gallon of milk. And, um, and I had to make sure my roommates did not touch my cereal. Don't touch my cereal. And uh, listen, uh, there is a lot of work that children go into to persuade their parents, can I watch TV? Can I watch TV? Can I watch TV? Uh, can, I, can, I, can I watch YouTube? Can I, can I have your phone? Can I play a game? Can I play a game? And it's not just parents. They go after the grandparents as well. And I think grandparents are maybe a little bit easier of a target. Something happens to the heart of an adult. The older they get, they get softer and softer and softer. And uh, it, it's a whole lot harder for grandma and grandpa to say no. How many of you are grandparents and you know I'm right? A little bit harder for grandma and grandpa to say no than it was for mom and dad to say no. Uh, children are great at persuading. Now, when it comes to the gospel, God has called Christians to persuade a lost world toward Christ. You all with me tonight? I know I, I, I'm not talking about Cinnamon Toast Crunch anymore. I'm talking about the gospel. All right? Don't let me lose you in the transition. All right? Uh, God has called Christians to persuade a lost world toward Christ. Sometimes God sends someone to the back of the proverbial grocery store to get help for a life problem. On the way to the solution, that person, uh, 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 that, on the way to the solution, uh, God walks them by bold Christians who He wants to use the gospel to see them get saved. 
Paul would commend believers to persuade unbelievers to receive Christ for salvation. Take your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Hold your place in Acts uh, number 26. Acts 13. Put a marker there. We're going to look at a few different chapters here. A few different, even one, uh, one verse outside of Acts. Acts 13. And look with me at verse number 43. Acts 13, 43. The Bible says, Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Notice the emphasis on persuasion. Persuasion. Look at chapter 18 and verse number 4. Paul and Barnabas were salesmen of the gospel. They sold the gospel to anyone who would listen to them, uh, both with their lifestyle, the way they lived. They, they, made, they made it attractive. They made it desirable. Uh, but not only with their lifestyle, also with their lips. Look at verse 4, Acts 18, verse 4. And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Look here. And persuaded, persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. What was he doing? He was taking where they were and trying to get them where he needed them to go. Needed them uh, to go. Brother Tom, you're a half step ahead of me on the outline there. Uh, that's all good. All right, now everyone knows what point number one is. Amen? Uh, we'll get, back, get, get to it in just a moment here. Um, listen, he persuaded them where they needed to go. Uh, if you're taking notes, write this definition of persuasion down. Uh, persuasion means to guide vital truths around another's mental roadblocks. To guide vital truths around another's mental roadblocks. What are we doing with the gospel? They have roadblocks that are keeping them from being saved. We're working to guide those truths around those roadblocks to get them where they need to be. Amen? Uh, We are persuading them. Uh, I am glad that uh, at this church we do not have a culture of manipulating someone into praying a prayer and then claiming they got saved when they never really even understood what they were doing. Shame on anyone that does that. Uh, shame on anyone who rushes someone through the gospel and says, if you'll just pray this prayer, uh, you'll get saved. Now, real quick, let me, uh, let me just show you how empty this idea is. is. If I can get someone to pray a prayer, that means that they will be saved. I could go back to our nursery right now, and I could uh, find a child who is capable of speaking, but not capable of understanding the gospel. And I could say to that child, pray this prayer after me. Is the child capable of repeating the prayer? Yes. Is that child capable of getting saved? No. A lot of people, that's their model of soul winning. It's, here, pray this prayer and you'll be saved. My friend, praying a prayer is not what saves someone. Believing in your heart that Jesus Christ came to earth, died for their sins, rose from the dead, and is the only way to heaven, that is how someone gets saved. Now, we, we, we bring that about, that comes to the culmination of a prayer, but you can't skip the process just to get to the prayer. Paul said, when it comes to getting other people to become a believer, we need to persuade them. Yes, with the way we live our life, but also with our lips. We are a salesman, not of a box of cereal, not of a car, not of a TV show. We are a salesman of the gospel of Jesus Christ to get other people on the straight and narrow and get them to heaven. Look at Acts chapter 19 and look at verse 26. Acts 19 
and verse number 26. Paul continues on this thought. He says, moreover, you see in here that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul, and this is the accusation against Paul, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. Even the outsiders, this is, I believe, Demetrius here, even the outsiders who hated Paul looked at Paul and said, this guy is doing such a good job of persuading other people of the gospel, we're losing money. He's persuading them. He's, Paul is bad for business, is what he was saying here, because Paul is so good at persuading others. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and look with me at verse number 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And verse number 11. I think maybe that this concept is codified the best right here in this verse. And where we've read, it's been talked about Paul and even mentioned of Paul doing it. But Paul comes right out and tells us exactly why it is or, or, or how it is we're to reach people. Look here, verse 11. The Bible says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Don't you think Don't you think that if we could all get into an elevator and travel down to an observatory room and look in and see the torment in hell Don't you think that if we could observe the terror of the Lord in action in hell Don't you think that all of us would be far more compelled to persuade the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ don't you think if just for a moment, just for a short time, we were able to see people on fire and people screaming in agony and, and people with worms crawling in and out of their eyeball socket and, and people uh, uh, cursing and yelling at God in, in agony and pain and the wrath of God being poured out on the lost and being poured out on those who lived a lifestyle devoid of God and rejecting of God. We could see the terror of the Lord. Uh, if we really, truly understood it, we would come back and we would do everything we could to persuade every individual we could to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I propose that Satan has worked hard to use everything that people see to convince them that they do not need Jesus Christ and His salvation. Christians are called to persuade anyone and everyone who will give us an ear uh, that faith in the invisible God is the only way to obtain eternal life. So let's jump in tonight, Acts 26. Let's rejoin Paul as he stands in court before Festus, Herod Agrippa, Bernice, the Roman, uh, Romans military brass, the top politicians of Caesarea. Here Paul is going to tell his life story and work to persuade Agrippa to give his life to Christ. Let's jump in tonight. Number one, here we go, Paul's address to the court. Paul's address to the court. Uh, look with me at verse number one. All right, so the stage has been set. Everyone's gathered. Uh, uh, this is a, a, a high-profile court case. Paul, who is the top missionary for the way, the Christians, he is standing there on trial. Uh, the, the, Jewish, the Jews have laid uh, their, uh, their, uh, their, their, their uh, crimes against him. They have stated their crimes against him. Paul has been able to defend himself. He's appealed to Caesar. Now Agrippa has come into town, and Agrippa and Festus are going to sit there and listen to what Paul has to say. Look at verse 1. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. 
Then Paul stretched forth the hand. That was a greeting. He's greeting Agrippa and answered for himself. Look at verse 2. I think myself happy, King Agrippa. By the way, I just want to get this in here real quick. I've heard whole sermons around this passage, and rightfully so. Um, we need to be very good at how we, what we let into our mind. Please understand that Paul now has been sitting in a prison cell looking at a prison wall for two years with seemingly no end in sight. But he's able to stand up in court and say, I'm happy. How was Paul happy? He thought himself happy. Uh, you, you, have, you must understand that a lot of what goes on with our outside is controlled by our thought life. We need to work hard to let the mind of Christ be in us and not let our mind run a million directions. I wonder how many of you here tonight battle with mind monsters. Mind. You know what I mean by mind monsters? You take a little, little thing and you dwell on it, right? And it grows and grows and grows and grows. And the next thing you know, something that really was insignificant and little, you have blown way out of proportion. And it is this monster in your mind that owns you. And Paul said, after everything he had been through, he said, I think myself happy. All right, look back at verse 2. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee, speaking of Agrippa, to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Most people who are Bible scholars uh, that I have read on this passage, almost all of them think that Luke gave a very brief summary of Paul's comments here in Acts 26, and that Paul went on a very, very, very long time giving his life story and laying out a case for Christ. We get the cliff note version here in Acts 26, and part of the reason why many people believe that is because Paul asks Agrippa to hear him out patiently, patiently. Much like Felix from two chapters ago, Agrippa knew Jewish customs and culture. Uh, perhaps Herod Agrippa knew Jewish culture even better than Felix. Uh, his great-grandfather, Herod Agrippa's great-grandfather, uh, was ruler in Jerusalem when Jesus was born. His grandfather was ruler in Judea when Jesus stood trial. His father was ruler in Judea and, and, and had James, the brother of John, murdered and Peter arrested. Uh, Herod Agrippa had grown up around the Jews. Agrippa had been moved to Cilicia for his rulership within the Roman government. When Paul stood before Agrippa, he knew that Agrippa was a aware of the Old Testament. He knew that Agrippa was aware of its writings, its doctrine. He was aware of the prophets. He was aware of the prophecies concerning a coming Messiah. Agrippa was knowledgeable of who the Pharisees were and the Sadducees were and their differences. Herod had the head knowledge of almost everything necessary to be saved. His missing element was belief that Jesus was the Christ. So, Paul's, uh, Paul's address was a twofold persuasion. Twofold persuasion. Uh, the first persuasion, he sought to persuade Agrippa that he was innocent of the Jewish accusation. And the second persuasion was of, of, of Agrippa's need of salvation through Jesus of Nazareth. So we see Paul's address to the court. Number two, we see Paul's account of his life. Paul's account of his life. Let me give you quickly here a letter A 
Uh, I believe we go down through E, A, B, C, D, and E here, okay? Uh, Look here, letter A, his charisma, his charisma or his zeal. You can put in parentheses next to charisma, zeal. Look with me, if you will, at uh, verse number 4. Verse number 4, and um, we're going to read down through verse number 8. I'll give you some comments here as we look at Paul's charisma. Uh, My manner of life from my youth, Paul said, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, Known all the, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning. Paul was identified uh, as a small child, uh, as having an extra fervent charisma or zeal for the laws of God. He no doubt stood out in the temple as a youngster. Uh, and similar to Jesus, he asked questions. He asked questions and gave answers that shocked and surprised uh, the elders of the temple. You remember Jesus at age 12, he goes in the temple and he's, he's asking questions, he's answering questions. Everyone's amazed. Now, I doubt Paul was on the level, uh, no, no doubt uh, Paul was nowhere near the level of Jesus, but at a young age, Paul was identified as being extra special. This, this young man has a, a boldness and a zeal and a charisma. He has the ability to learn the Word of God and, and memorize it. He loves the laws, and he was put on a fast track, and brought, in fact, even brought to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel and learn under Gamaliel. Uh, look at verse number 5, which knew me from the beginning. Speaking of the Jews, they knew him from the beginning. If they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion... Look at this phrase, I lived a Pharisee. I lived a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee in every sense of the term. He was a Pharisee uh, binding heavy burdens and uh, grievous to be borne, to lay on another man's shoulders. A Pharisee doing all his work to be seen by men, making broad his phylacteries and enlarging the borders of his garments, loving the uppermost room at feast and chief priests in the synagogues and greetings of rabbi, rabbi in the markets. A, a Pharisee shutting up the kingdoms of heaven against men, neither going in himself nor allowing those who are entering to go in. A Pharisee devouring widows' houses and for a pretense making long prayers. He was a Pharisee compassing sea and land to make one proselyte, a blind guide paying tithe of mint and anise and, and cumin and omitting the, weight, uh, omitting the weightier matters of the law, judgment and mercy and faith. A Pharisee making clean the outside of the cup and platter, but within he was full of extortion and, and, and excess, a whited sepulcher appearing uh, beautifully outwardly, but uh, inwardly full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness, uh, outwardly righteous, but inwardly full of hypocrisy hypocrisy and iniquity. Paul was a Pharisee building the tombs of the prophets and and, and garnishing the sepulchers of the righteous. He was the child of those who killed the prophets. This is who Paul was as a young Pharisee. This is exactly how Jesus described the typical Pharisee in Matthew 23. When he says, I lived a Pharisee, boy, he was the stereotypical Pharisee. Look at Verse number 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which made our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope uh, to come, for which hope's uh, sake, uh, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? He's saying, listen, I am uh, on trial here not for what I've done, I'm on trial here for what I, what I believe. And what I believe is different than what the Pharisees claim to believe. While they claim they believe in a resurrection, I actually am pushing forward. And I am, uh, I am saying that Jesus is the resurrection, and they have a problem with that. Paul is saying to King Agrippa, you know that since forever the Jews have been looking for a promised resurrection. 
You know that, Agrippa. You grew up in Jerusalem. You grew up around uh, Judea. You know the culture. You know the belief system. Why should it be any surprise to you that the God of heaven has come through on his promise? I love this. John Phillips said, anyone who thinks that God cannot raise the dead has a God who is too small. A God who can bind a hundred billion stars into a galaxy and who can create a hundred million galaxies and hurl them into intangible space can certainly raise the dead. A God who can make an atom a million times smaller than the thickness of a human air, so small that the smallest accumulation that can be seen under an ordinary microscope contains more than 10 billion of them who can subdivide each atom into particles so that each atom is a miniature universe with a nucleus made up of protons and neutrons. Uh, If a hydrogen atom were about uh, four miles in diameter, its nucleus would be no bigger than a tennis ball, and all the rest empty space uh, with electrons whirling through it, each one uh, uh, completing billions of trips around its orbit each millionth of a second, who can pack into the atom enough power to incinerate a city or dissolve an island, it is certainly able to raise the dead. A God who can make a human body out of some 60 trillion cells and make each cell so small that it takes a very good microscope even to see one and a super microscope to see inside one, yet each one a miniature city with power stations, transportation systems, methods of communication, who can make each such a a cell a highly specialized and fantastically complex chemical structure can certainly raise the dead. After all, when we stop to think about uh, the astonishingly complex process by which a human body is created and to think about the even deeper mystery of life itself, it's no more incredible that we should live again than it is that we should live at all. Why indeed should it be thought a thing incredible that God should raise the dead? It is incredible that man shall raise the dead, but not that God should raise the dead. Amen? Uh, He said to Agrippa... He said, all I am doing is believing in the resurrection that the Pharisees have claimed to believe all of these years. And now that I claim that it has happened, boy, now they want me dead. And Paul points back to his childhood. He points back to his charisma. Letter B, we see his contempt, his Contempt. Again, we're going uh, a chapter by chapter through the life of Paul. We saw his, his charisma in his childhood, that zeal that he had, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, uh, rising in the ranks, and that rising in the ranks turned to contempt toward the Christians. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says, I verily thought with myself, and I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them off, look here, in every synagogue, every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Verse 11 talks about punishing them in synagogues. Uh, Prior to there being church buildings, as we have today, and even as they would have just a few decades after uh, Paul's uh, uh, persecuting them, um, uh, even prior to that, 
uh, the Christian church met in synagogues. They would meet in the local synagogues. And Paul would go in with the precedent of other court cases, one in other synagogues, and he would bring in those believers in Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarenes as they were called. He would bring them in and put them on trial. And uh, uh, on trial, he would try to get them to renounce the name of Christ and he would try to force them to deny they believed in Jesus. And when they would not, when they would not, he would have them arrested and thrown in prison and even oftentimes killed. When uh, he was... He was zealous. He had contempt. He believed in the purity of the Judaism religion and the laws of Moses. He believed that that was the only way to God. And when Christian, Christians came on the scene and began to uh, uh, create their own version of Judaism and their own, uh, their own belief system, boy, he saw it as his place to stomp it out and eradicate it and eliminate it. And he had contempt in his heart. Let her see we see his conversion, his conversion. Look with me in Acts 26 and look at verse number 12. The Bible says, Whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. Let me just uh, insert this here before we get to 13. Saul of Tarsus did not go to Damascus with the intention of converting to Christianity. All right, we all understand that? When Saul of Tarsus saddled up that day on his horse to go to Damascus, he was not going there to become a Christian. He was going there to kill Christians, to arrest Christians, to carry them back. Um, he went with the intent of stomping out the opposition to the religion of Judaism that he had given his entire being to. Look at verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them that journeyed with me, and when we were all fallen to the earth, I, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Can you imagine the shock that Paul must have felt? Paul had been persecuting Christ. Paul had been persecuting the Messiah. The man who claimed to be the Messiah and the man whom others claimed to have been the Messiah that he uh, rejected and denied. Now this man is talking to him and saying to him, My name is Jesus and I indeed am the Christ, the Messiah. Notice that Jesus says to Saul, It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. You see that there? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. What was Jesus saying to Saul? He was saying, I have been trying to reach you but you have been too stubborn to yield. I've been trying to reach you, Saul. You've been too stubborn to yield. It must have irritated Saul when these followers of Jesus would not renounce their belief in Christ in these synagogues. Saul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It must have gnawed at Saul's conscience when Stephen recounted the prophets in the Old Testament and preached his scathing sermon aimed right at the heart of Saul. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It must have haunted Saul at night while he tried to sleep as he recounted Stephen's final words as he was being stoned to death. Saul, Stephen said, Lord, lay not this sin at their charge. Jesus told Saul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The Lord Jesus Christ was working on the heart of even 
the most ardent opposition to his cause. This is such an important point. I sure hope you all are listening. You look out at our world today and you pick the person who hates God the most that you know of, the person who is opposed to God and doing everything they can uh, to get rid of him. And I promise you this, God is working on them as well to save them. There is no one that God is not trying to save. For God so loved the world. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Some of you in here tonight, you have a family member who opposes your faith, or a family member who mocks your faith, or a family member that does not like to talk to you about your faith, and you think, I just don't think that person will ever get saved. You know what? God never gave up on Saul, even though Saul was murdering Christians, throwing them in jail. God did not give up on Saul. God was in the background convicting and convicting and convicting. Why? Don't miss this. This is so important. Why? This fits into the sermon about persuasion. Why? Because there were Christians along Saul's path who were being a good salesman of of the gospel. Being a good salesman of the gospel. Here they are. These men are being arrested. Women are being arrested and thrown in prison and they will not renounce their faith. They're being a good salesman of the gospel. Here uh, uh, Stephen is uh, telling Saul that you're wrong, Saul. You're a a child of those who who murdered the prophets, Saul. Uh, You're wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. Stephen was being a salesman of the gospel. And God was using this in this man who is an ardent opponent of the gospel. God was using this in his life to kick him against the pricks, to to, to convict him. And that eventually led to his conversion. We see letter D, his calling. His calling. Look at verse number 16. But rise. Again, Paul is recounting to Agrippa his, uh, his testimony. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I appear unto thee. Now, hear me out on this. Laying prostrate on our face before God is a great position. And one that you should find occasionally. Amen? Amen? It's important that sometimes we're in so much awe of God that we fall on our face and we worship God prostrate on our face. When was the last time you did it? When was the last time you were so overcome by God's presence that you actually laid on your belly, face first on the ground, and talked to the Lord? But you know what? You can't do much serving the Lord on your face. Paul said, God said to Paul, Jesus said to Paul, he said, look back at verse 16, rise and stand up upon thy feet. God said to, um, God said to, to, to Saul here, uh, now Paul, uh, you're not going to get much done laying around or sitting around. God, God called him to minister and witness of his salvation. Look at verse 17. Uh, de- delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance amongst them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Jesus told Paul, he said, listen, I am sending you and all that charisma you used against the church I'm now sending you into the darkness to turn the Gentiles to the light of the gospel. God said to Paul, listen, I've saved you not to sit around 
and sour, I've saved you to stand up and serve. Get busy. Get busy. Get to work. There's a work to do. There are those living in darkness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul later, uh, later say, it is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believeth, the Jew first and also the Greek. And God said, I've called you to take the gospel to the Jews that have lived in darkness for millennia. Take the gospel to them. Look at verse number 19. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these cause the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Paul ascertains that he's done nothing worthy of arrest or death. He has been busy simply obeying this calling of the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He said, listen, uh, I was one of those who were trying to kill, and now I am busy telling others about Jesus because I have been ordered to do it. What was the calling of Paul? The calling of Paul was to take the gospel to the Gentile world. Letter, notice letter E, and lastly, his continuance. His continuance. Look at verse 22 and 23 here. It says, having therefore obtained help of God. Look here. I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets of Moses did say should come, uh, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show, uh, show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Paul leaned on Old Testament prophecy to back up his claim that Christ was the Messiah uh, that Christ the Messiah would suffer and raise upon the dead and that uh, this message would be sent forth to the Gentiles. And Paul is telling Agrippa, he's saying, listen, I'm simply doing what I was ordered to do. I'm simply obeying God's calling on my life. I am witnessing to everyone who will listen. And he said, I am no respecter of persons. He said, I witnessed when uh, they were insignificant uh, people living in remote villages. And, and anyone that came along my path, I've witnessed to those who, uh, who were uh, uh, small. And he said, now I stand here and I witness to those that are great. I am going to continue doing what God has called me to do. Oh, that God would have the Christians of White Oak Baptist Church find God's calling on their life and commit to it for a lifetime. Amen? Live it for a lifetime. Boy, don't let Christianity be a fad that comes in your life and out of your life. Don't be that tree that's planted shallow and your roots go down shallow and you shoot up real quick and then you're gone and not to be seen of again. You be that tree planted by that river of water and in your season you bring forth that fruit and have a leaf that does not wither. And it ought to be said of you 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, there's brother such and such, there's sister such and such, they're still busy continuing uh, following the calling of God. They were converted, they found their calling, and here they are all those years later continuing in that calling. Amen. We see Paul's address to the court. We see Paul's account of his life. We see here number three, the council's answers to Paul. The council's answers to Paul. Let me give you an A and a B here. Notice letter A, Festus's chagrin. Festus's chagrin. Um, Festus was not happy at what he heard from Paul. Now, we looked at Festus last week, and we talked about how that Festus just wasn't buying anything that Paul was selling. Um, Festus had his mind made up that Paul was a kook, that Paul was crazy, 
and that Paul's belief was superstition. That was the word he used. We saw in, in chapter 25 last week. And he wouldn't even let his lips say that Paul believed that Jesus raised from the dead. He just said, Paul believes that Jesus is alive. That's all he would say. And so Festus is sitting there. He's listening to this long, long, long account of Paul's testimony. And Festus has had enough. He can't handle it anymore. And so he blurts out and interrupts Paul. Look at verse 24. And as he thus spoke for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, he interjects, he interrupts, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. You have lost your ever-loving mind. Verse 25, but he said, Paul, Paul answered, notice that he is respectful to Festus. I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. Festus was finished with Paul's nonsense. <laughs> he was finished with it. To Festus, this was foolishness. Foolishness. What was Paul doing? He was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to Festus, it was foolishness. It sort of sounds like something Paul said in 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 1.18, uh, Paul wrote, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to, unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. It is the power. I sure hope that preaching on the cross never gets old to you. It never, gets, uh, never grows weary to your ear, but you rejoice any time the cross of Christ is held high and the gospel is preached. To Festus, it was foolishness. He couldn't take it any longer. He said, Paul, I've heard enough. He said, Paul, I, here's what I think happened, Paul. I think that you became so supreme in the Judaism religion that there was no more uh, a ladder for you to climb, and so you just went out and started your own crazy belief system. He said, Paul, much learning has made you mad. You've gone crazy. Letter A, we see Festus's chagrin. We're looking at the council's answers to Paul. Notice letter B, Agrippa's conviction. Agrippa's conviction. Look at verse 26. Paul is telling Festus, he says, for the king, speaking of Agrippa, knoweth of these things, before whom I also speak, also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. What thing? We'll talk about that in a moment. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but all that hear me this day. The room was filled with a lot of important people. Paul said, not only thou, but all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. The soil of Agrippa's heart was quite different than that of Festus's. Why? Because Agrippa knew the Old Testament prophets and prophecies. Agrippa knew that his great-grandfather had tried to kill baby Jesus. Agrippa knew of the claims of the resurrection of Jesus. And... Agrippa knew of the Roman cover-up over the resurrected Christ. Agrippa knew of Paul when he was just an up-and-coming squirt, big shot within the Pharisaical ranks. Agrippa felt in his soul that Paul was sincere in his message of Jesus the Christ 
and salvation. You know what Paul had done in his testimony? You know what Paul had done in his account of his life? Paul had taken all of the pieces of the puzzle that Agrippa had and he'd put them all together. Paul had showed Agrippa, you need to believe in Jesus for salvation. Then he looks at Agrippa and he asks him a very pointed question. Agrippa, do you believe? Now I want everyone to hear me. That is the question that everyone must answer at some point in their life. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Do you believe? That's the question. That's the question every human being must face before they die and see the Lord. Then Agrippa states some of the saddest words in the entire book of Acts and even the entire Bible. Agrippa states, he says, Almost, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Oh, what sad words. My mind floods to many soul-winning stories. One in particular comes to mind. It was in between my junior and senior year of Bible college. I was home summer break and showed up to the church on a Saturday morning to go out on soul winning. I was paired up with a friend of mine named Justin. Justin and I went to an apartment complex. Later, I would live in that apartment complex. And I remember knocking on the door of a man in his 30s. I don't remember the man's name, but I can remember exactly where his apartment was. I I can remember what the man looked like. I can remember almost as though it was yesterday. I remember standing there and going through a thorough explanation of the gospel and answering his questions and working hard to guide the vital truth of the gospel around the roadblocks of works-based salvation. And remember, I got down to the end, and I looked this gentleman in the eye, and I said, will you accept Christ to be your Savior? And I remember the conviction on his face. I remember it as though it was yesterday. The conviction on his face. The, the, the battle going on in his heart was, was played out uh, right there uh, on his face. I, I remember I had taken the p- uh, p- uh, puzzle pieces of the gospel that he had learned in, uh, ca- in the Catholic Church and other uh, uh, upbringings of his and I put it all together for him. Uh, the point of decision was there. I called his name and I said, Do you believe? Do you believe? Will you believe? And he looked at me and he said, I'm not ready. I said, he said, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to believe. And I said, I, I, I rebuttaled. I came back from another angle. I, I pushed him a little bit more. I felt the Spirit of God pushing me to push him a little bit further and push him a little bit further. And I remember uh, uh, tears began to run down my cheeks as I began to persuade and push and prod and persuade and push and prod. And for a good 25 minutes with this man, I stood at his door. I knew he knew the gospel. I begged with him. I pleaded him. And tears were not just running down my cheeks. Tears, tears began to run down his cheeks too. He looked at me and I said, what's holding you back? He said, I'm just not ready. I said, what's holding you back? He said, it's just not time. 
And I said, sir, by choosing not to decide, you're choosing to decide. I said, don't, don't walk away from this opportunity to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And in essence, what he said to me was, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I remember getting in the car that day with Justin and driving back to the church. And the car was quiet for the first half of the ride. And finally, Justin broke the silence and he said, boy... If that had been me on the other side of the door, I'd have caved. I'd have given in. I'd have gotten saved. He said, let's pray the rest of the trip home, uh, back to the church, that that, uh, this gentleman will will put his faith and trust in Christ. Let me make one more point, and we'll wrap up the sermon. Here's the point. If tomorrow morning at your work you decided to sit across at that table, your break room, You decided to give the gospel to those at your work who weren't saved. Would they sit there and scratch their head and say, You're a Christian? What? You're late to work all the time, and you're the laziest one in the building, and you talk bad about your spouse, and uh, 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 you're always playing politics, and, and, and you're constantly causing problems, and drama swirls around you, and, and now you want to tell us? about Christ? Let's say tomorrow you decided when you got home from work to walk next door and and knock on the door of your neighbor and you were going to tell them about Jesus and they stopped and they thought, wait a minute, wait, wait, you're a Christian? Boy, your kids don't listen to you and I hear you and your spouse fighting in your home all the time and I see you out in front of your house and bickering and arguing and fighting. Well, on top of that, look, you've got weeds growing out of your gutters and your grass is never cut and you're the last one in the neighborhood to clean up your leaves and you never clean your walkways when it snows and you, you, you're a Christian? You're a believer? Imagine that you got into a car accident tomorrow on your way home from work and it was a fender bender and no one was severely hurt and you got out of the car and you began to witness to the person in the other vehicle and they said, well, well, wait a minute. I saw how you were just driving and I saw how angry you were before this accident. You're a Christian? You're a Christian? You get into a heated exchange with a waiter or waitress at the restaurant or the person at the checkout counter or the customer service agent on the phone and then the Lord hits you in the heart and says, you need a witness to him. And so you change gears and you change directions and you begin to tell them about the Lord. Maybe you hand them a gospel track and they look at you and say, oh, wait a minute here. You're a believer? You see, we are to be busy giving the gospel with our lips but we are not to discredit our lips by the way we live our life. May we preach the gospel with both. You see, Paul here is standing up in this courtroom. He's laying out a case for Christ. He's laying out a case for a grip of salvation. And Paul had a lifestyle to back up his message that made his message that much more persuasive. Agrippa's conviction. I don't know about you, but 
I want to represent Christ everywhere I go and everything I say and every attitude I have. And, 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 and earlier this week, I, was, I rushed into a gas station to, to get a receipt on some gas side purchases. I was frustrated because there was no receipt paper at the pump. Do you ever, ever have that happen to you? You go to print the receipt, and there's no receipt paper, and, you know, it's freezing outside. You've been sitting out pumping gas. And you think, oh, I've got to go in there. I remember rushing in, and I, my spirit was sideways. I was frustrated. And I said to the girl with an attitude that probably wasn't just right, I said, could I please get a, re- a receipt uh, uh, for pump number? And my, my voice was curt. My voice was not kind. My vo- was, voice was irritated. My body language was irritated. Oh, yes, I used the word please. And yes, I said the right things. But boy, my body language was not right. And I felt the Spirit of God hit me on the inside of the chest and say, do you even have a track to give her? And if you had a track to give her, would you give it to her after you just talked to her the way you did? Are we convincing people? Are we persuading people with our lifestyle of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we a salesman for our Savior? Number four, and lastly, notice Agrippa's assessment of Paul's future. Look at verse 30. When he, this is Paul, when he had thus spoken, the king rose up and the governor and Bernice and they that sat with them, and when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doth doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Anyone who was objected, objective and fair-minded knew that Paul was innocent and deserved to be set free. Felix knew it. Festus knew it. Agrippa and his sister Bernice knew it, but he would not be set free because that was not God's plan for Paul. Next week, we're going to get on the boat with Paul, and we're going to go with him as he starts heading toward Rome. And he's going to take the gospel to the most powerful court in the land. Paul was not done witnessing the politicians. God needed someone who could count on, uh, who he could count on to shoot straight and to be bold with the gospel message. Paul was that man. He had taken the gospel to the poorest of poor, those of the world who lived in absolute anonymity. Now it was time for him to take the message of the gospel to those around Nero and possibly even to Nero himself. If a, in a world filled with persuasiveness on every side, let us be busy persuading a confused world that Jesus is the only hope of eternal life. Question number one tonight, does your lifestyle preach Christ? Question number two, does your lips preach Christ? Well, let's be busy persuading a world that needs Jesus. Heads bowed, eyes closed this evening. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Almost thou persuadest me. Who can say that about you? Almost thou persuadest me. Who are you busy witnessing to? Who are you busy praying for? Who are you busy giving the gospel to? Who are you working on? Lord, tonight, will you take what has been preached and would you drive it home into our hearts? May we never, ever, ever lose the main thing. Lord, may we be ambassadors where our citizenship lies and that would be heaven. May we represent you well with both how we live 
and how we speak. Lord, work on our hearts this evening. Help us to make decisions for you. In Jesus' name.